Our scripture this reading today is um, in Luke 7, 18 through 35. Feel free to read along. John's disciples informed him about all these things. So John called two of his disciples and sent them to Jesus to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and granted sight to many who were blind. So he answered them, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. When John messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in fancy clothes. Look, those who wear fancy clothes and live in luxury are in king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He is the one about whom it is written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Now all the people who heard this, even the tax collectors, acknowledged God's justice because they had been baptized with John's baptism. However, the Pharisees and the experts in religious law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then should I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another, We played the flute for you, yet you did not dance. We wailed in mourning, yet you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is vindicated by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. These ancient words recorded are tried and true and relevant and in fact are, as you have described, sharper than any two-edged sword because 
They are breathed ultimately from you. And we thank you. Father, as we come to the text, uh, allow it to speak, move, but it's out of the way. And thank you for what we have before us. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a reminder as well, changing April the 11th, we have a business meeting. And one of the things we'll be voting on is Michael uh, serving as our associate pastor. And I am just so excited not to, to... steer the vote, but, <laughs> or uh, t- whatever, color it, but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, bringing Michael in as our associate pastor. Well, we are at a text, Luke chapter 7, if you would turn there. If you've just joined us, we've been journeying through this gospel and will be done in 2027. Uh, we're just excited about our journey. Speaking of journeys, I remember as if it was yesterday, our family decided that we were going to go out west. We are going to see Mount Rushmore and Yellowstone Park. And as we journeyed, we kept seeing these billboards, a wall drug store in Wall, South Dakota. Some of you are chuckling. You know about the 76,000 square foot drug store. Uh, It's on steroids because it has gift shops and eateries. And they boast of over 350 billboards scattered over 300 miles. And we thought, well, it it has to be good. There's all these billboards. And so we did what every tourist does. Uh, We made the detour to visit Wall Drug Store. I think Bill Bryson in his book, The Lost Continent, defines it well. He says it's an awful place, one of the world's worst tourist traps. (laughs) But he does say I loved it, and I wouldn't have a word to say against it. But there you are. And, And so what we envisioned, what we thought was going to be, did not occur. Let's just put it that way. And John the Baptist, a key player in the Gospels, I mean, he, he was there with the birth narrative. We, also, we saw his presence there. He, he was there when he baptized Jesus. He's launched this incredible ministry. And yet, he's wondering if he's read the billboards correctly. Is this really the one that we were looking to, this Jesus? And so in your notes, if you have those before you, the first segment we see is John's question now, let me paint the, the backdrop. If you, Luke doesn't highlight this, but the other gospel writers let us know. Luke is imprisoned at this point. He made the fatal error of telling the ruler of the day he was living in sin. <laughs> and consequently, uh, Herod Antipas, one of Herod the Great's sons at the time, imprisoned John. Eventually, John will be beheaded by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, who we're going to meet here again in the text, as I stated, was one of the sons of Herod the Great. His territory will be the western side of the Sea of Galilee and the eastern side of the Jordan River. He's the one, as we just stated, will take John's head. He's the one Jesus will appear before during his trials. And often he's referred to simply as Herod. But don't confuse him with his father, Herod the Great, who died 54 B.C. Uh, when Jesus, shortly after Jesus, a couple years before, well, after Jesus was born. 
And so here we have John who is imprisoned and the text tells us that he has sent a couple of his disciples to inquire, Jesus, are you really the one that we have been looking for? Notice the text. They sent Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Notice he sends two disciples. According to the Old Testament, you need two witnesses to validate a claim. So he has sent two and Really, the question he's asking is, who really are you, Jesus? Now, it's interesting what Jesus, how Jesus responds. Notice what the text tells us. So he answers, verse 22, tell John what you have seen and heard, which is loaded as well, isn't it? These two disciples have been privy to Jesus' ministry, not just John's. It's been a very public Testament of Jesus' miracles. In fact, we just looked at those two, two of them last week, didn't we? It's the centurion's slave and the widow's son. And Jesus said, go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed. Of all the things to say to John, I would have thought, remember, you were in Elizabeth's womb when you leaped in my presence. Elizabeth had to share with you the stories of how the angelic host met and how we were announced. Don't you know my genealogy? It traces it back to David. No, no, no. He, he says, look what I've done. Do you remember Luke chapter 4? In the, the, go back. Look at Luke 4. When he's in the synagogue and Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, 18, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, giving sight to the blind. That's exactly what Jesus is stating here. He said it in chapter six. He comes back to this referring to Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 40. And he says, tell John the following. Now, let me give you two texts. Isaiah 40 is key to this. Isaiah 40 says, a voice cries out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. This is the message John will give. In fact, in all three of the Gospels, this is on the lips of John the Baptist. Prepare, make way the, the coming of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway. Isaiah 40 goes on to say, Every valley shall be lifted up. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. John 1, 14. What's he say? We saw his glory. <laughs> I love standing on the Mount of Olives and you rehearse with the group that we have. You, you, you teach through it and you go, you, you look at Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord departed. Remember that? The Old Testament and now it's returned in the presence of Christ. And Isaiah 40 says, the glory of the Lord will come. And then Isaiah 40 states, see the Lord God comes with might and he rules he is, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. John 10, 11. I am, Jesus states, the good shepherd. You have Isaiah 40. You've got Isaiah 61. And you have Malachi 3. In this text, it says, in Malachi 3, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. That's John. Then the text says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. John, we're going to talk about the state that he's in. 
why he would ask such a question of Jesus. But it's clear, he's saying to Jesus, are you really the one that we've looked for? Are you this coming one? Are you the messianic figure we've longed for? And Jesus pulls out of the arsenal of the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 40, and Malachi 3, and he says, I am the one. This is what has been promised. I was reading an autobiography of the rabbi Leopold Kohn from the 18, early 1900s. You may know Kohn because he was the founder of Chosen People Ministries, a Jewish ministry. But it was Malachi 3.1 that led him to Christ. Malachi 3. He said, I read that text and I realized that is referring to Jesus. He is the one. And as John is in this pit of despair, Jesus says, listen, look what's happened. Go tell John what you've seen. The lame walk, the blind see, lepers are cleansed. In other words, I am this coming one that you have longed for. Of course, the question is, too, why would John even ask this question? And some scholars try to, I don't know, make John look a little bit more respectable. They say, well, he was hopeful rather than doubtful. He was impatiently waiting, or, and I love this one, he simply asked the question for his disciples because they hadn't believed yet. No, I think John is overcome with doubt. The baptizer's predicament, as well as what he expected of a messianic figure, that is a political figure. This was the understanding in the first century. This coming one, this Isaiah 61, this Isaiah 40, this one who would come would overthrow foreign oppression, would restore the Davidic throne. And this is what John's going, wait a minute, I'm about to be headed. I'm about to die. Why haven't you acted? Why haven't you done something here? This is not what I envisioned in the text. Circumstances of life can shake the very foundation of our soul, can't they? Charles Spurgeon, the great minister from London, makes this comment. Some of us who have preached the word for years have been the means of working faith in others and of establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. That's Charles Spurgeon. John the Baptist has had an incredible ministry. He's had a huge following. In fact, when we get into the latter part of Acts, we meet followers of John all the way over in Ephesus, modern Turkey. He, he's also had a, a ministry marked by incredible moments. He baptized Jesus. The voice was heard. This is my beloved son. And all these things, and yet John struggles. He's facing death. This isn't what he anticipated Reminds me of Psalm 13 where the psalmist says, you know, how long, O Lord? Don't you care? Where are you in the midst of this? But what I love about Psalm 13 and I love about John is they run to the Lord for the answers, right? They run to the Lord and say, I, I'm going to have to trust you. Even doubting thoughts and feelings that border on sin are better laid out before the gracious eyes of the Lord than nursed in our hearts. God will not be shocked. He knows our innermost thoughts anyway. 
makes one statement from a pastor, and he's right. Like Psalm 13, we run to the Lord with our questions, with our doubt. And that's what John is doing. He's saying, I, I need to find this out. I need to verify this. Or, or, or perhaps I should just recant. The list that Jesus gives in, in 22 is obviously selective, but it's representative, representative of what we see in the Old Testament here. And the, then Jesus makes this statement, blessed is anyone who takes no offense, who, who's not tripped up by these things, who make these claims here in the text. Well, let's move forward and let's look then here at this reference in 22 and 23 when he says the blind see. As we mentioned Isaiah uh, 40, there's also Isaiah 35, another text I want to highlight. I, Isaiah 35 states, when it says the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom. When? When the, the glory of the Lord comes. They will rejoice and be singing. Luke's gospel is full of joy. It begins with joy and ends with joy. Isaiah 35, 4 states, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. And then 35, 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. This laundry list that Jesus gives, once again, echoes Isaiah 61. It echoes Isaiah 40, Isaiah 35, Malachi 3. There is no question. Jesus is stating, I am the coming one. I am the one that you have looked to. Well, they go back with their report, but Jesus isn't done. The crowd that stands, he, he has further instruction. We see in verse 24, it says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to teach the crowds about John. And then he asked this very interesting question. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Remember that John's ministry is primarily in the wilderness along the River Jordan where he was baptizing. Now his baptism was not as was practiced among Jews in the first century. Baptism in the first century was by immersion for purification rites. They were baptized many times. In fact, they had special tanks called mikvotes. If you were really wealthy, you had one in the home. But many would go to the south side of the temple complex, dip into the pools, and then go into worship. John's baptism was different. He was calling for a repentance of sin and a demonstration of that was through baptism in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. We baptize today to indicate our identification with the one who's already come, Christ. So John's baptism is a little unique. And it says, why did you go out to do this? To see a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go see? A man dressed in fancy clothes? It's very interesting, even then highlights that it's a king. Did you go out to see the one who is the, the captor, Herod? Or did you go see the prisoner, or the one who will be a prisoner, that is John? It's interesting, this reed shaken by the wind. Herod, Antipas, min, minted several coins. I want you to see this one, if we could show it on the screen. If you look very closely on the obverse, uh, excuse me, the reverse, you'll see on the, the, the left side, that is a reed. 
many of his coins, he minted a reed on the backside of it. And what is Jesus saying? Did you go out to see Herod? Antipas? This one dressed in fancy clothes? This king? The answer is no. The local yokels despise the Herodian dynasty. No, we wouldn't have gone to see Herod Antipas. We went to see this one who was a prophet. And that's what Jesus says in verse 26. Or did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you more than that. He's more than a prophet. And Jesus will then identify three key components about John the Baptist that I want you to see. First of all, John is more than a prophet. This is there in your notes. He is the messianic forerunner. He's that messenger that comes, we saw in Malachi 3. Exodus 23 also talks about one, an angelic host that will go before them. He plays a very unique role. John is really that graveling hook that's thrown in the, to the New Testament and combines the old to the new or the bridge. He's the last of the prophets that bring us into this messianic age. And thus, I would argue, if you don't have a John the Baptist, you cannot have a Jesus. You have to have a messianic forerunner that can introduce the Messiah. That was vital. The, the scriptures are clear about that. Every gospel writer highlights the important role that John plays in the life of Christ. It's vital. And the, the ex expectation of the messianic forerunner is that you will repent and prepare the way. Malachi goes on to state with this messenger, if you do not respond, if you do not restore your hearts, I will strike the land with a curse. And I believe that's what Christ took on the cross for us. But John is delivering this message to repent, to be ready for the Messiah who is to come. And Jesus states in, in Matthew 17 clearly that John was that messianic forerunner. In Matthew 17, Jesus states what they did to the forerunner, they will do to me. Instead of receiving John, they did not. They will also not receive the Messiah. And so going back to John, he is a great prophet that serves as a messianic forerunner. Then Jesus states of John that he is the greatest born among women in verse 28. That too is a shocking statement, isn't it? When I think about Abraham, you got Moses, you got David, you've got Joshua, you got Solomon, Isaiah. And Jesus states, no, he's the greatest born among women. Why? Because he has the very unique role of introducing Christ to the world. That's his role. It's glorious. What others have longed to see, he fulfills. One scholar writes, and John is among those who anticipate the eschaton's arrival with its fulfillment in Jesus. In times, this is it. That fulfillment comes in Jesus and is tied to the bestowal of various covenantal benefits like the permanent indwelling of the Spirit that occurs later in Acts chapter 2. John introduces, but sadly he doesn't participate in the new covenant does he like those of old before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? And that's why Jesus will state, yet this John is the least in the kingdom of God. He doesn't get to participate in the permanent dwelling of the spirit of the new covenant. 
And so thus, yes, he plays a key role, but oh, the opportunities you have as followers of me. And we'll get to that in the application, but it's key. And then finally, Jesus states that John's ministry has brought division. Did you catch that? He said, not all the people who have heard, I love this, of God's justice, and I love that Luke highlights tax collectors. <laughs> They've acknowledged that they're sinners and that God's judgment is upon them, and thus they must repent. Sadly, the religious rulers who should have known they, they knew Isaiah 61. They knew Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. They knew these texts, but they missed it. And thus, judgment. The Pharisees and experts in religious law, verse 30, rejected God's purpose for themselves. Isn't that interesting? And they refused to be baptized. Why? Because they have not repented. And John's message comes as a knife as it divides. How ironic, again, that you have experts in God's special revelation failing to see the importance of God's own will for their lives. Later, Jesus will pose a question to the religious leaders in Luke chapter 20. Remember, that there's these questions they're asking Jesus. They're trying to, to trick him up, trap him. And Jesus volleys with a question. He says, did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it from humans? And they're toast, the religious rulers. Because if they say it is from heaven, then they'll be, why didn't you believe? If they say, no, it wasn't from heaven, they're going to have a real problem with the crowd who has embraced John's ministry. It was a clever question. And, and, and the, the same question's being asked here. How do you respond to John's message in light of Jesus? And then Jesus goes on and he gives this very interesting, and scholars have debated who is Jesus talking about here in this imagery and who is the, who is the one complaining? The text tells us, to what should I compare the people of this generation? I believe Jesus is referring to the religious rulers here. They represent the nation. And he said, they are like children sitting in the marketplace. You got these spoiled little brats, right? <laughs> you got to do what we say. If you don't, you don't get to play with us. You know, at one moment we play the flute, this idea here of rejoicing, of maybe a wedding festivity, and you didn't do it like we told you to do. And then we mourned, and you didn't mourn like we wanted you to mourn. And in fact, there, this dictation is based solely on them, isn't it? We did this. You were to do that. We did this. You were to do that. And notice... Thus, they will state that John, he has a demon because he would not eat the bread and drink the wine. According to Mark 1, John the Baptist had a very interesting diet. It was locusts and wild honey. Ooh. Right? And you go, why? Because he was identifying as a prophet. It was what was expected. He also wore this camel hair jersey, right, that he had. From 2.5. And he had this thing around him, right? And you go, what is that sucker that he's wearing? It's the same description, by the way, of Elijah. The prophet. The connections are huge. Because the, the forerunner, the one that would come 
and announced the Messiah was to be in the spirit and power of Elijah. That was the expectation. It's not a coincidence. On the cross, the crowds think that Jesus is calling for Elijah. Why? Because Elijah was this one who was supposed to come and restore humanity, introduce the messianic age. And sadly at the cross, by the way, Elijah doesn't come and the Messiah dies. The world's turned upside down. It's what you would have anticipated. When Jesus announces, this is my beloved son at the baptism, one like Elijah is there, John the Baptist. At the transfiguration, the Elijah is there. And God states again, this is my beloved son. But at the cross, the father doesn't speak. And Elijah does not come. John is this forerunner. He is the figurative Elijah that brings us in. And yet the crowd states, at least the religious rulers, he's got a demon. And for the Son of Man, look what it says. His fault is not that he doesn't, it's that he does. He eats and he's a drunkard and he wines and dines with the, 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 the sinners. It's horrific. An individual which fails to recognize the power of God must either dismiss it or explain it away. Otherwise, that person would have to recognize he is a sinner and need of grace or reject the grace and recognize a future judgment for his sin. You can't have your cake and eat it too. The Puritan Octavius Winslow writes, Beware of that practical atheism which excludes God from his own world. Which excludes him from your individual history. He is not only present in his created universe, but he is as much in personal events of life, shaping, guiding, overruling each and all. The sad part is, here they had John in their midst and they got the Messiah, Jesus, and they've missed it. Why? Because they wanted those two to play their game. You didn't play the flute like we played the flute, right? You, you didn't wail like we did when we mourned. And so Jesus states in verse 35, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Throughout the Old Testament, God's counsel is associated with wisdom. In other words, the children of the Lord will vindicate. This will be seen, those who follow. Well, what do you do with this text? It's an intriguing one, isn't it? Historically, it's intriguing. Biblically, it's theologically, it's loaded. There are three things that I have in your notes. First of all, why we may doubt how the Lord might work in our present circumstances. We are not to doubt the character and promises of our Savior. James is very clear on this. Saying when, when the trials come and, and we're not sure exactly what God is doing, we go to the Lord for wisdom. The foolish man goes and says, God, I don't trust you. You're not a caring God, and I'm going to do it my way. That's the danger. And, and so much in our society, and especially in this postmodern world, we applaud doubt. And put it right up there with the Trinity, careful. Scripture never says we're not going to doubt from the circumstances. Abraham doubted. Unfortunately, he blew it and brought in Hagar to try to fulfill God's promises. But he never doubted God's promise. 
That's the difference. And that's why he can still be listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. How do we not become wavering Christians? Let me give you three things to hang on your beak. First of all, we need to reside in his promises. Scripture grants us a greater awareness of who God is and what he has done, is doing, and will do. In so doing, we move towards a full assurance as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. How are those men and women listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? It's because they knew who God was and they trusted in him and understood. Did it always make sense? No way. Were circumstances difficult? Yes. But they trust because they know they resided in his promises. Secondly, we also need to request his provisions, just like James stated. We ask for wisdom. Lord, I don't, I don't know how to, to maneuver through this pain or how to cope with this. This doesn't make sense, but I trust. And finally, we need to relinquish all control. James 1.21 indicates that humility before a sovereign God is essential. We don't see the big picture. God does, doesn't he? Some of the darkest days in my life was my first year of PhD studies. I was thinking about doubt and trusting, etc. Uh, I had eaten so many ramen dinners, I was about to, I don't know, turn into a noodle. Um, the accommodations were horrible. I was lonely. Hadn't met my wife yet. Quit the best job that I thought I'd ever had. And I, I had hit a wall with my dissertation, and my advisor brought me in, and she said, I hate to tell you, there's a German monograph that just came out, and it's on your very topic. And consequently, you'll have to find another dissertation topic. <laughs> I said, you have to be kidding. So God and I had a little discussion. I think I walked to every street of Aberdeen. Did my situation change? No. Did all of a sudden I feel some fuzzy feeling come over me? And No. Yet through it, I was reminded God's, I am faithful. God's promises. I'm in charge. I brought you here. Trust me in the midst of this. I got back to the flat and my advisor had sent an email saying, I need to talk with you tomorrow. So I arrived and she said, this is glorious news. Because she had a copy of the, mon the German monograph. She goes, it's fantastic because it, he, he takes a totally different approach as you. Now you have ammo for your dissertation. Go for it. It's awesome. God knew. In fact, because of that, I went then to Germany and was able to study with Otto Betts, who was just a godsend, a godly New Testament scholar. The Lord knew all that. It's like, just trust. Don't doubt me. You may doubt the circumstances, but I'm in charge. And I look at this scene with John the Baptist, and it's like, John, just cling to what you know. And that's what Jesus is stating, isn't it? He, he goes, look what you've seen and heard. What do you know? Cling to that. What have you read here? Cling to that, right? That's what Jesus is stating. Secondly, living this side of the cross should cause us to rejoice greatly. The prophets of old longed to witness the glorious privileges which we enjoy today. I'm of the BC generation, before computers. 
Remember the typing classes? Oh, that was awful. A-E-E-A-E-C-C-A. Oh, could have shot that teacher. Anyway, that was awful. Dreaded typing classes. Then you, you had the card catalog system. Remember that? The old cards? I mean, these kids have it so easy today. What's the deal? I'm telling you. And then, you know, you, you were excited if you had an overhead projector in the classroom. I mean, oh, what technology. Think about where the old prophets were and what they longed to see versus what we have today. We have a Messiah who can overthrow sin. We have a Savior who can bring salvation. A fulfillment of prophecies given throughout the Old Testament, we've got to see fulfilled. A permanent sacrifice that could pay the price for sin. A victor who could conquer death. A permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. An ability to live out the fruit of the Spirit through the Spirit's indwelling. An advocate at the right hand of the Father. An immediate and ongoing access to the very presence of God. An opportunity to be called the children of God. An allowance for the righteousness of God placed upon us. A guide that indwells us to instruct and intercede on our behalf. A down payment which secures our salvation. An opportunity to see the birth of the church. A way for Gentiles to be grafted in. An opportunity to participate in the bride of Christ. A privilege to enter into Christ's sufferings. An opportunity to know the power of the resurrection. Those Old Testament saints long to see what we have. And yet, so often, I meet believers today, they look like they've been sucking on prune juice. I mean, we should be gloriously joyful. And that's what Luke's trying to stress. Look what we have. Look at the arsenal we have here as saints today. They didn't have that. That's why John is even going to be the least in the kingdom compared to what we have before us. Well, the third, there are no gray areas in response to the things of the Lord. The passage begs the question, whose side are we on? Either we embrace Jesus or we reject him. There's no middle ground. In fact, middle grounds are devised for self-preservation and self-centeredness. And eventually that middle ground will cave. A sinkhole will take it right down. It's never ultimately safe. The unwillingness to commit is to commit. A.W. Tozer said, Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. He's right. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world the love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away. But those who do the will of God live forever. You either hate the Lord or you love him. You can't have it both ways. Scripture doesn't allow it. And unfortunately, the religious rulers have missed. It's not about whether John and Jesus play the flute correctly. It's what are they doing in trying to harmonize with John and Jesus. There's a quote at the bottom of your notes by R.C. Sproul. 
He said, the reality is that Jesus is already Lord over all things. <laughs> His lordship is not something we accomplish. It is something we recognize and submit to. It's not something we negotiate. It is something we proclaim. We live in a glorious age, do we not? We long for the, our Savior's return. In the meantime, we have the opportunity to exalt the name of the Lord, to live for him. Oh, I'm not saying it will be easy. I'm not saying that doubt doesn't come from time to time. It does. But we cling to the Lord. We cling to his promises and trust him. Lord, thank you for this text. Even John, this great stalwart in the faith and the gospels, struggled at some of the darkest hour. He wants confirmation that your son was truly the Messiah. Lord, we're so grateful that we have the Old and the New Testament, which confirms these things for us. And as could be easily stated by many in this room, we can testify to how Christ has changed our life. We're a new creation because of what he has done for us, your son. And we thank you. Father, help us to live, not in the gray, <laughs> but as men and women, young people fired up for you, to serve you, for indeed, Lord, we need you. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name.